listening to a sermon from Mission City Fellowship of San Antonio, Texas. Mission City Fellowship exists to make and mature disciples of Jesus Christ who live all of life for the glory of God and proclaim Christ for the joy of all people. It has been a just a, a real blessing and a real joy over these last few mon- months where we have been having uh, church members come and read the passage uh, from which we're preaching. And uh, this morning we have John coming to share, read God's word. Good morning. Today's sermon comes from John 12, 20 through 26. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, <clears throat> and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. Father, we are so grateful that your word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. We are so grateful that your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Lord, we are so grateful that you continue to use your word to help us understand, to direct our hearts, to challenge us, to convict us. And so this morning, as we turn to your word, Lord, again, I know these people, they may be listening to my voice, but I I pray, Lord, that it is your voice they actually hear. That you will address the deepest needs, the deepest struggles, the greatest hurts, Lord, that you would address the confusion, the uncertainty. Lord, that you would do a work among your people for your glory. We pray this in your great name, Jesus. Amen. I don't know if you've ever heard of the pastor, and he's just a, a wonderful pastor, a great preacher by the name of James Boyce, James Montgomery Boyce. Uh, he once was reflecting on the various pulpits in which he had preached over, over his years of ministry. And uh, a pulpit is like the podium. Uh, like this. This, I guess, would be considered a pulpit. Now, uh, we use this basically just a simple music stand because we have to, we have to set up and tear down every week. But many churches, uh, they have pulpits, they have podiums or pulpits that are often really beautiful. And sometimes they're really ornate. Um, and sometimes there's oftentimes there's some kind of meaningful symbol, Christian symbol on the front of, of the pulpit. But if you were to look at the backside of the pulpit, what the preacher sees, you would often see something very different. Uh, You would find usually old bulletins that somebody had placed in there and forgot to clean out. You could find hymnals, boxes of tissue, 
Sometimes you will find a small trash can. Sometimes you'll find empty glasses. Um, there may be electrical, electrical cords running through there so, so that the, the podium or the, the pulpit can have light or, and sound. Uh, all kinds of things go on there. And sometimes you find notes. And, and, and James uh, Boyce was, was talking about, in one pulpit he entered into, he found that they had put a little note there for him to make sure he knew about the timing, to make sure he was aware of how long he had to preach. Uh, but he said his favorite sign, or the favorite thing that he remembered was, was a sign that had been pasted inside that read this. Somebody had put that, this, this sign there. He said, sir, we would see Jesus. Sir, we would see Jesus. That is a good word for any preacher, any teacher who stands before people to share God's word. That the people who are listening that they will actually see Jesus. The passage that was just read for us from John chapter 12 tells us that there were some Greeks who came seeking for the Lord and they asked something very similar to what was pasted on that, that pulpit. They asked to fill up, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. We wish to see Jesus. It was interesting. Uh, Jesus responded to this request by saying, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, when we first read that, we were like, what in the world, why in the world did Jesus say that? How is that a response to what Philip said when he came to Jesus and said, hey, we've got some Greek folks out here and they really would like to talk to you, Jesus. And Jesus' response was, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. It's an unusual thing to happen. It's, it's kind of like you could imagine if you're, if you're at home and someone knocks on the door and your kid goes to answer it, and the kid comes back to you, and the kid says, hey, there's somebody at the door who wants to talk to you, and your response is, the sparrow flies, but the turkey trots. <laughs> you know, your kid would be like, uh, okay, but what about the person at the door who wants to talk to you? I, I wonder if the disciples felt like, Jesus, what in the world are you saying here? What, what is going on here? You can, might even imagine the confusion that is taking place. But Jesus is not being indifferent. He's not dismissing the request. He's not deflecting their request. He is actually acknowledging that their request is a significant moment in his life and ministry. That's what's going on here. Now, Greeks here, it could mean men who were actually from Greece, men who were ethnically Greek. But it was most likely generally probably referring to, to Gentiles in general. Uh, that would be in a Gentile basically is anyone who's not, not, not a Hebrew, anyone who's not a Jew. And, but either way, whether it was actually Greeks from Greece or whether it was just using that symbolically to refer to all Gentiles, Whatever that may be, Jesus' response is to state that the hour has finally come for the Son of Man to be glorified. See, Jesus saw their pursuit of Him and their request to see Him as a sign that the purpose of His earthly mission was now moving towards its final conclusion. 
We have read repeatedly throughout the Gospel of John, in John 2, in John 7, in John 8, after Jesus would be teaching or Jesus would do some kind of, uh, of incredible miracle that he would withdraw from the public eye and he would make a statement like, my hour has not yet come. Here he is saying just the opposite. My hour has now come. Everything up to that point his conception, his birth, his three years of ministry, his miracles, his, his teachings are all been leading to the point where the Son of Man was to be glorified and to be glorified in a very specific way. Actually, everything from this point on in the paragraph, we are to understand it and it is to be read in the context of the glory of God or Jesus' glory, his hour of glory has now come. Actually, God's glory is the main concern in this paragraph, and it becomes clear in the next paragraph that, God willing, we will look at next week. It becomes even more central when Jesus prays to the Father, glorify your name. And the Father responds, I have glorified it and will glorify it again. So just, just a brief note about the glory of God. Um, we talk about the glory of God. We say all of life is for the glory of God. Everything is to bring glory to God. Our lives are meant to glorify God and enjoy him forever. This glory is this big word, but do we know what it means? Do we know what it's talking about? What it's pointing to? The glory of God is the beauty and magnificence of his character that is on display in his creation and in the lives of his people. What he is and how he acts, that is the glory of God that is on display, both in what is happening in the world and what is happening in the lives of his people. It is everything that God is being demonstrated for, what it's, for, what, for who he is and what he is worth. The glory of God is his worth and his loveliness and the perfections of all that he is that is demonstrated. It's demonstrated in all that he does. And Jesus, God the Son, is the focal point of God the Father's glory. So we're going to take a little bit of time here. And we're going to, 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 to understand a little bit more about the glory of God that was being demonstrated in, in, in the Son. So three things I want us to get and understand from this passage. Number one, the glory of God is displayed in the suffering of Christ. The glory of God, His beauty, His magnificence, His character is displayed in the suffering of Christ. Again, we read this. Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Have you ever wondered why Jesus calls himself the Son of Man? He often refers to himself in that way. The title Son of Man is from a vision in Daniel chapter 7. Let me read this for you. Verse 13. I saw in the night visions... And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. 
This was obviously was referring to, to Jesus. Daniel may not have known that specific thing, but it obviously as we read through scripture, he was referring to the Messiah. He was referring to Christ. And so Jesus took on that name for himself. He was identifying with this son of man that Daniel had essentially prophesied many, many hundreds of years earlier. Jesus is the fulfillment of the vision of the one who would be called the son of man. He, in essence, is the Messiah, the Holy One, the promised one, the Christ, okay? And it has been a recurring theme of the gospel of John. We talked about it even last week, that the people had definite expectations concerning the Messiah. Certainly, when they thought of God's glory revealed in the Messiah, they thought of power, and they thought of conquest, and they thought of might. They wanted and had even expected a Messiah who would bring political and military revolution, someone who would overthrow Roman rule. We've talked about that many times already in the Gospel of John. That was the expectation, that he would gain political control over the, over the, the nation. But yet Jesus, again, is pointing away from that kind of Messiah to a suffering Messiah. When Jesus spoke of a seed falling to the ground and dying, he was telling them he is going to die. And this death was how the Son of Man was to be glorified. J.C. Ryle says this. This sentence was primarily teaching the wandering Greeks the true nature of Messiah's kingdom. Our Lord would have them know that he came to carry a cross and not to wear a crown. He came not to live a life of honor, ease, and magnificence, but to die a shameful and dishonored death. The kingdom he came to set up was to begin with the crucifixion and not with the coronation. Its glory was to take its rise not from victories won by the sword and from accumulated treasures of gold and silver, but from the death of its king. Let that impact you. What, what nation in human history ever was formed through the death of its leader. Through the death of the one who said, hey, we're going to establish this thing and I'm going to go ahead and die. That's not how you did things. It's not how you do things today either. This was so counter to everything that they thought, to everything that they were hoping for even. And when we talk about glory and to glorify, we're talking about to make much of something, to magnify its worth, to glorify something is almost always in the sense of revealing and displaying. To glorify, for example, someone's artwork would be to display it. We would like other people to look at it. In a sense, that's glorifying it. We're revealing it. We're putting it out there for people to see. What displays the true glory of the Son of Man? It is His suffering and death on the cross. It is Jesus' self-sacrifice 
where He willingly put Himself in our place to suffer our death, to take our judgment on our sin on Himself, and He did it out of love for us. It is displayed. It is in this display of Jesus' sin-atoning death that He is glorified. D.A. Carson says this. He wrote, Jesus' death was itself the supreme manifestation of Jesus' glory. You know, it's interesting that the two ordinances or sacraments, however you want to refer to them, given to us, both are about the death of Jesus. That what we are to do till he comes again in the Lord's Supper and communion, we're remembering his death and also our place in his death. This is a significant thing. The cross of Christ is a dividing line. How people see Jesus' cross and what they believe about what happened there It divides people, and it sets people on very different paths in their life. Jesus and the Word of God reveals to us that Jesus saw the cross as His glory. This is what He came to do. He was glorifying the Father by dying on the cross. The Romans saw His cross as some kind of unthinkable humiliation that was debasing, and it was horrific on every level. The Greeks saw the cross as imbecilic and beyond foolishness. Who would do this? This is horrible. Yet we hear the inspired words of the Apostle Paul. 1 Corinthians 1. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and Christ is the wisdom of God. See, only those who belong to Christ see the cross for what it truly is as the glory of God displayed in the glory of Christ's suffering. You know, demons believe in the cross. The difference is they don't delight in it. They don't relish it, and they certainly don't love the one who died on it. They despise the cross, and they despise the one who died there. The cross is a dividing line. Is it the glory of God? Spurgeon wrote this, Christ's death is his glory, and it ought also to be ours. To spiritual eyes, the Christ of God was never more glorious than when he was nailed to the cross of Calvary. A glory never equaled, shone around the conqueror of death and hell, when he bowed his head and said, it is finished. 
So what is your response to the cross? It is only by dying that Jesus became our Savior. And unless Jesus had borne our sins on the cross, in that glorious moment, there would be no salvation, and there would be no Christianity, and there would be no church. It was a glorious moment, and Jesus was just highlighting it in that moment. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And he goes on. And says this, like the seed when cast to the ground and dies, it brings a great harvest. And that really leads us to the second point. Number two, the glory of God is displayed in salvation for the nations. The glory of God is displayed in salvation for the nations. Jesus responds to the request of these Greeks. And saying that his hour has come indicates he looked upon their arrival as a sign that his mission was coming to its climax. It was coming to its culmination. It is as if Jesus sees this moment as a decisive turning point for the world. Why? Because in this moment, we see clearly God's intention that the gospel is not just for the Jews, but it is for all people of all nations. This seems like no duh to us. This was huge back then. Nobody was thinking this way. Acts 15 gives us the Jerusalem Council, which is when all the leaders of the church came together. And you know what the big issue they were trying to resolve was? What do we do with all these Gentiles who say they're becoming saved? What, 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 what do we do with them? What's happening them there? And this is what was spoken that just tells us that, 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 that people were trying to get this. They were trying to understand this. It just wasn't, it wasn't connecting fully, fully yet. But this was really what Jesus was doing in this moment. After they finished speaking, Acts 15, 13, after they finished speaking, James replied, brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And we're, we're meant to follow this. If you remember last week, actually verse 19 from John 12, where the religious leaders kind of ironically, we would say, they make this statement, the whole world has gone after him. And then we follow this up with the Greeks coming to Jesus. We're meant to see that, to make that connection. He sets us up to see that in Jesus' hour finally coming, it corresponded with the Greeks or the Gentiles seeking him. When Jesus spoke of a seed falling to the ground and dying, he said the result of that is going to be, it's going to bear much fruit. Salvation is coming to the nations. Again, this may seem like a given for us, sitting 2,000 years later and having church history and being able to see the bigger picture, of course the gospel is for all people in all nations. Certainly it is for all people in all nations in all ages. But again, this was far from understanding Jesus' followers, from the understanding that Jesus' followers had. And it's only later after Jesus is glorified and at later after he's raised and the spirit had given uh, that they would understand the good news really is for all people. 
And what was even hard for them to say is, and, and these people coming to Christ, they didn't have to become a Jew before they became a Christian, which was really the essence of the, the discussion in Acts 15. They didn't have to take on the law. They didn't have to take on circumcision. And even then, they were still grappling with this. In Galatians, we see this, this, this where, where Paul confronts Peter because Peter still, he doesn't get the big picture yet. He's withdrawing, he's withholding himself from fellowship with other Gentiles because he's afraid of what some of the other religious people in the church might think about. It's still a thing. Yet Jesus commanded in Acts chapter 1 that we were to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. In that command is this, is this it's implied that where we are his witnesses, there will be people who respond to that witness. You see, family, God has children everywhere. It blows through cultural barriers. It cannot be stopped by those kinds of differences. The gospel doesn't belong to America. It doesn't belong to Europe. It doesn't belong to Asia. It is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, wherever they may be living. And it is this marvelous truth to behold as there are followers of Christ all across the globe. And it is through this means of grace of preaching that the gospel, of preaching the gospel that people are saved. That's why we go. Listen to what Romans 10 says. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him who they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So as we move through our day, as we move through our week, are we aware of those who are around us and what God is doing in their life? Are we aware that our feet are meant to be those beautiful feet? It's not just a pastoral call. It's the call to a Christian. And it is wonderful because it is through the means of grace, of preaching, of sharing, of presenting the gospel that God saves his people. That is the means he uses. And that is why we are called to be faithful, to share Christ. And we are moving toward a day when all the people of Christ will gather and we're gathering to praise the Lamb. Listen, Revelation 7. After this, I looked up and behold a great multitude that no one could number. Think about that. A multitude nobody could number. From every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, and they're standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. I want to be there for that. By God's grace, we will be. But there's this... this this diversity that's reflected there from every tribe, every time. The gospel's going everywhere as it is preached faithfully.
The glory of God is displayed in salvation for the nations. Number three, the glory of God is displayed in wholehearted followers of Jesus. It is displayed in wholehearted followers of Jesus. Jesus said in verse 25, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Basically, Jesus applies to his followers what he had said about himself. For the seed to bear much fruit that glorifies God, it must die. For the followers of Christ to bear much fruit, they too must experience a kind of death. It is a death to a life centered in self. Listen, the glory of God is displayed in a follower of Christ who is reflecting Christ by giving themselves wholly over to Christ. The glory of God is displayed in a follower of Christ, reflecting Christ by giving themselves wholly over to Christ. That is what he is saying here. The life that he, the word life he uses here in verse 25, basically is the life, he's talking about ego. It's the word psyche. Uh, we get psyche from this and psychologists and psychiatry comes from this basic, this basic word. But it's talking about the ego. It is saying that if we truly want to live, it comes at the cost of living for ourselves. You see, if we really want to live, the question of what is happening moment to moment of every day is not what do I want or what I desire, but what does my Savior want and what does my Lord desire? And Jesus is saying, if you're willing to let go of living for self and instead live for Christ, he's saying that we will find the very life that we are so much after, that we so much want. You know, as we think about the purpose of this church to make and mature disciples of Jesus Christ, you know, a disciple comes down to this. It is a person who has been born again by the Spirit of God, who is learning by that same Spirit to follow Jesus in every area of life. I think that's just such, it reduces it to a meaningful but, but very simple way of thinking about what following Christ is about. Following Christ means, being a disciple means we are learning to follow Christ by the power of the Spirit. That same Spirit that saved us and brought us to life is now working in us to produce something different in our lives. That we are by that same Spirit, we are learning to follow Jesus in every area of life. This is what Jesus meant when he said in Matthew 18, Matthew 28, that we are to go and make disciples, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. Teaching them to learn to follow Christ in every area of life is essentially what he's saying. We are actively trying to understand what it means to follow Jesus everywhere in our life, in all areas of responsibility. As a father, as a mother, we're learning to follow Jesus. 
As a husband, as a wife, as a son or a daughter, we're learning to follow Jesus in every area of life. As a worker, we're learning to follow Jesus in every area of life. As an employer, we're learning to follow Jesus in every area of life. As a citizen, as a neighbor, as a grocery shopper, as a taxpayer, as someone seeking medical care, we are always learning to follow Jesus in every area of life. That's what Jesus is calling for. And when we're learning to do that, Jesus is saying, you're going to actually find life by losing your own. Whatever our life brings us, we are seeking to follow Jesus. We are seeking to obey Jesus. We are seeking to do what he wants. See, this is a person, this disciple who is learning to follow Jesus, is someone who's continually seeking to lose his life in order to find his life, to find true life in Christ. This is a person who just like from Romans 6, we were say you've become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. You've become obedient from the heart. It's not an external thing. It's an internal thing that, that the spirit is driving inside of us. Listen, God is glorified, not in our perfect living, because I don't know if you know this, that doesn't exist in this life. And I don't want to burst your bubble, but you're, you're not perfect. I'm not perfect. If you know me, you know that. God isn't glorified because all his people are living life so perfectly. They've nailed everything. They've got it all under control. I mean, God sees truly, God sees accurately. It's not, it's not that. That's not where God is glorified. He is glorified in his work of grace in our imperfections. He is glorified in his work of grace in our failures and in our weaknesses and especially in our sin. Where sin abound, what? Grace, all the more abounded. You can't out the grace of God. Now, we don't want to continue in sin. But God's grace is so much greater. He is forming us and he is shaping us steadily and increasingly into the image of Jesus Christ. I mean, certainly we are not what we should be. And we are probably not what we could be. But we're not what we once were either. And that just fuels us to continue to go forward in faith and hope and trust in the Lord. Jesus is calling us to gain life by surrendering to him. His point here is not losing life, it's finding life. We tend to focus on what we think we're, we're, we're giving up. The whole focus of this is you're finding something so much more, something so much better. And you've been deceived into thinking that what you're fighting for is actually better than what the Lord provides. Again, his point here is not losing life. His point here is finding life. We can focus on what we give up. He is focused on what we gain. Life. Abundant life. Eternal life. Life with him. And Jesus promises something here at the end of this section. Something he, he had promised already in Matthew 28. Something that he repeats again in Acts chapter 1, that he is with us always. 
We are well provided for as long as the Lord is with us. He's not a Lord that rules from afar. He is the Lord that rules from within. He doesn't say, hey, I set this thing up. I saved you. Now you go be obedient to me and you let me know how it goes. And that's how a lot of people think of their Christian faith. And prayer becomes, well, I better, better let God know what's happening because he obviously isn't aware. And I need to get his help over here. That's not it at all. He is with us. He does not say to his followers, go out and obey me and just keep me up to date. Listen, he comes right alongside of us. And by his spirit, he actually fills us. There's never a moment where the child of God is absent, the spirit of God. Nothing we face, nothing that comes against us, nothing that we can do. We can resist the work of the spirit, but he's still there. And when he comes, he brings, this is, what, this is what's so important. It's not that you just have a person here. It's that you have the Lord Jesus with us. And he brings all that he is to bear in our life that we might actually have true life, not a false life, not, destruct, not a life that is destructive and is defined by this world that really is no life at all. And Jesus promises for everyone who follows where he leads. Listen, he promises this, that the Father will honor them. We are richly blessed in Jesus. We have eternal life. The presence of the Lord always is with us. And now Jesus says, and, and the honor of the Father. Now, I'm not exactly sure what that means, that he will honor. That he will honor the one who does what Jesus is saying, who will follow him, who will be where he is. But I'm guessing it's a pretty good thing. I'm guessing it is something beyond comparison. I'm guessing it would be worth any sacrifice that the Father would honor us. It may be as simple as the Lord greeting us one day with, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. That would be a great honor. I am reminded of the wonderful and simple words of Jim Elliott. And most of you probably know who that is, but just to make sure that everyone knows Jim Elliott and he was with four other missionaries in the 1950s. They were killed by an indigenous tribe where they were trying to bring the gospel to them. They were killed by this tribe. And this is what Jim wrote. In, this is what Jim said. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep, his life, to gain what he cannot lose, eternal life. Jim Elliott had seen through the lie of living for self. He had seen the emptiness of all that this world offers, and he had realized the far greater value of the new life and of the new creation that God promises, and, and something I had never known before. After his death, they actually found Jim's journal. And I want to read the last thing that he wrote in his journal. 
I walked out to the hill just now. It is exalting, delicious, to stand embraced by the shadows of a friendly tree, with the wind tugging at your coattail and the heavens hailing your heart to gaze and glory and give oneself again to God. What more could a man ask? Oh, the fullness, pleasure, and sheer excitement of knowing God on earth. I care not if I never raise my voice again for him, if only I may love him and please him. Perhaps in mercy he shall give me a host of children, meaning converts, that I may lead them through the vast star fields to explore his delicacies whose finger ends set them to burning. But if not, if only I may see him touch his garments and smile into his eyes. Oh, then not stars nor children shall matter, only himself. Oh, Jesus, master and center and end of all, how long before that glory is yours, which has so long awaited you. Now there is no thought of you among men, but then there shall be thought for nothing else. Now other men are praised, then none shall care for any other's merits. Hasten, hasten, glory of heaven. Take your crown, subdue your kingdom, and throw all your creatures. May our hearts be filled with such Christ-exalted and Christ-centered passions as the glory of God is displayed in the glory of Christ. Let's pray.